So we're, uh, in my family, we love Christmas. We're getting pretty excited about Christmas. We've been doing some Christmas shopping. And then a week from today, uh, we've got a Christmas lunch right after church. Just throw that out there. We'd love for you to stick around for that. And then right after that, we're going to rush off to the airport and we're going to fly home to see family. And we're excited about that. Um, I love spending Christmas with, Christmas with my family. Um, love Christmas, the, the whole thing, you know, getting up in the morning with the kids and going down. You got presents. And growing up, um, I would always go and see my grandparents. And I never knew what my grandmother was going to give me. Because my grandmother is, gives like the most pragmatic presence imaginable. All right. So maybe you have a relative like that. Like when I was 12, I think I was 12, maybe 11. Um, I, I got like that stereotypical underwear and closet hangers. Can anybody identify to that? Anybody ever get underwear for Christmas? A little part of your 12 year old soul dies when that happens. Can I just tell you? It's just like pain, you know? And so now though, I'm married and uh, my mother-in-law, I don't know why, but she, she has sort of taken upon herself to carry that torch for me. And so uh, I get things like extension cords and batteries and flashlights. And, and then a few years ago, while we we're still living in Dallas, so about four Christmases ago, we we're living in Dallas, and I came in and by the Christmas tree, there was a snow shovel with my name on it. I don't know if you know much about Dallas snowfall averages. Um, like less than a dusting, you know, it's like if I went out there with my snow shovel, I could maybe like shovel my driveway and get like half an inch of snow. And so I was like, is this some sort of a joke? I didn't know what to do with this. As it turned out, the joke was on her because then we took the grandkids and moved them to Pennsylvania. And now I get to use the snow shovel. So it it all worked out. We don't always get what we want, right? We don't, we just don't always get what we want. In fact, um, we've got two kids, six and three, two boys. And so if, I don't know if any of you got this pep talk, but this is the pep talk we give to our kids. I three, I have three now. (laughs) You're kidding, right? I have two that know what's going on. (laughs) Third, he doesn't get anything and he doesn't know. It's okay. Don't tell him. I love you, buddy. I love you. I love you. Um, I really, I really was just trying to say I've got two that I'm talking to. All right. So I've got these two that I'm going to give this pep talk to. Maybe you got this pep talk growing up. Okay, guys, it's Christmas morning. You're going to go down. We're going to open presents. You're going to open the box. Whatever comes out of the box, you say thank you and you look happy about it. Did you get that? Did you get that pep talk? I got that pep talk growing up. It doesn't matter what comes out of the box. If it's underwear and closet hangers, doesn't matter. You say thank you, you look happy about it. So we're going to give them that that pep talk because we just don't always get what we want. We don't always get what we want. And, and, And of course, that's not just at Christmas, that's in life. We see this every day. As you get older, you realize it more and more and more. You don't get what you want. Not always. Sometimes you do, but but you don't always get the job that you want. You don't always get the career that you want. You don't always get the girl that you want or the guy that you want, the relationships that you want, the friendships that you want. And nobody looks forward to those things. Like nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, man, I hope that in this world there will be more violence. Nobody says, I hope that today someone's really going to stab me in the back and hurt me. Like nobody wants those things. We don't always get what we want, which means that I think it's fairly natural that a lot of us, probably all of us to some extent, have asked this question, where's God? Like when we encounter those things, when we encounter those situations, those tragedies, those things that we don't want in life, and we say, okay, God, where are you in this? I mean, seriously, God, do you see what's going on in my life right now? Do you see how this is playing out? Do you see our world today? God, where are you? 
It might be that for some of you even here this morning that, that it's in asking that question that you're really starting to question God at his existence at all, that maybe you've written him off completely. Because, man, if God was real, like, this wouldn't be happening. X, Y, and Z, he would take care of that stuff. And for the others of us, though, even if we have hold, held on to God, we believe in God, and yet there's still this struggle at times to say, God, do you see what's going on right now? Do you see what's going on in my life? Do you see what's going on in our world? Where are you in this? God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? And so if that's you this morning, I just want to say, like, if you've ever asked that question or if you're asking that question today, maybe you're struggling with that. Where is God right now? I want you to know that you're in good company. That, that believers for the entirety of civilization, everyone who's walked with God, has asked this question one time or another. God, where are you in the midst of this? It's a struggle that there are seasons, there are times where God seems distant, where he seems silent, and it's only natural to say, God, where are you in the midst of this? In fact, if you look back through the history of Israel, like the nation of Israel, by the time that we come to Jesus' birth, I mean, this is the question that the entire nation is asking. This is the question that all of Israel is asking. They've lived under hundreds of years of captivity, Nations oppressing them, ruling over them, they're exiled, they're brought back, they're exiled again, they're brought back. I mean, it's like hot potato with the nation of Israel. One nation takes over, then another nation takes over, then another nation takes over. And all the while they're waiting, all the while they're looking forward to the, the Savior, the Messiah, the one that, got, excuse me, the one that God would bring who would sit on the throne of David. That's what they're looking forward to. God, where are you in the midst of this? God, where are you in the midst of all this captivity? When are you going to show up, God? When are you going to put the king back on the throne and reestablish the nation of Israel? When's that going to happen, God? Because it's been hundreds and hundreds of years and we don't see you. And so it's that context that Matthew is writing to this predominantly Jewish audience, probably. And, and he knows that this is the question that they've been asking for hundreds and hundreds of years. God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of what we're having to, to deal with. When are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to put the Messiah on the throne? And when are you going to drive out the Romans? Because we're sick of those guys. When's this going to happen, God? When are you going to show up? All right, so that's, that's the context as Matthew then leads us into the birth of Christ. So let's read this together. You can follow along up here. If you have your Bibles, we're looking at Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, um, let me let me start right there for just a moment, because um, if you've been in church, you've been around church, or you've even celebrated Christmas, you've probably heard this story before, which means that all of us, you and me, were in danger of reading the story like it's normal. And it's not. Like, this is one crazy, insane story. I mean, let's just start with this. You've got what Matthew's telling us here is that there's this girl, Mary. All right, so far, so good. She gets engaged to this guy, Joseph. Again, that happens. And then it turns out that she's pregnant. Also happens. But then Matthew throws this little caveat in there, this little bitty detail. Oh, yeah, that child, he's from the Holy Spirit. And he just throws it in, like, matter of fact. Like, that's just an everyday occurrence. That just happens. Oh, yeah, it was found to be, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Like, that happens every day. Think about how crazy this is. I mean, like, if your friend came to you and said, hey, um, so my fiance, she's pregnant, but it's all good. It wasn't another guy. It was the Holy Spirit. You'd be like, dude, she's cheating on you, and you're an idiot. Right? 
And I'm pretty sure that Joseph would have felt very much the same way, at least initially. Because remember, he doesn't know about the Holy Spirit. Not, not yet. He, he's just, as far as he's concerned, as far as he's concerned, she's cheated on him. And so as far as he's concerned, okay, she went behind my back, she cheated on me, now she's pregnant. And so he really has no option other than to divorce her. That's really the only solution that he has. So, so engagement in ancient Jewish society was as legally binding as marriage. So if you wanted to break a, an engagement, then that meant you had to get a divorce. And if you cheated on somebody that you were engaged to, then that was the, that was the uh, equivalent of committing adultery. And so for Joseph, really, he has no other option other than to divorce her. There really isn't any other option within that society at that point. It's not like you're going to have a shotgun wedding um, unless he was to admit that he was the father, and that's not going to happen. Okay, so he's got no real option. And so I want you to see is that, that there is zero incentive for Joseph to actually stay with Mary, but he has everything to gain by divorcing her, both financially and personally. So if he was to divorce Mary, uh, that means that, that if he had paid a bride price for her, then he could get that back. So in our context, that would be like if you gave the girl an engagement ring and then she broke it off or, or you know, she cheated on you, you could get the engagement ring back. That would be kind of the equivalent, roughly. All right, And, and then he could also keep the dowry. So this would be sort of like the, the inheritance that she would bring into the marriage. He could keep that legally. So financially, it's in his best interest to divorce Mary, but also publicly from a personal standpoint. He can uh, save himself all kinds of public embarrassment and shame if he just puts her aside, if he just divorces her. Because you got to think, I mean, the gossip mill's got to be running rampant, right? I mean, Mary is disgraced. Her reputation is ruined. Nobody will have anything to do with her. And so what will they say about Joseph if he stays with her? Either he's the dad, which means he's as big a sinner as she is, or... He's a fool, and he's staying with this woman who really publicly humiliated him by cheating on him. See, there, there is zero incentive for Joseph to stay with Mary. But, but notice, and this is really important, this is really key, because I love this about Joseph. Like that guy, he can handle it two different ways. He can either make it public and ugly, or he can do it quietly. He can either drag her out into public and continue to like pile on the humiliation and shame and throw the book at her, or he can do it quietly. And I love what it says, that he is unwilling to put her to shame. And so he resolves to do it quietly. He shows restraint. He gives her grace. That's something um, we could learn a lot from, don't you think? I think we could learn a lot from that, especially in today's world. Like we live in, in what I, I saw an editorial in the New York Times this week called The Age of Outrage. I love that. We do, don't we? We live in the age of outrage. And we love to tear people apart, tear people down. Like heaven help the person who makes an ill-advised comment, you know, on, on a Facebook page. Heaven help the person who makes a public mistake because it's like blood in the water. I mean, social media tears them apart. We'll go after them like wolves. If you've ever read the comment section under an article or an editorial, you ever read those? And it's disgusting. It's ugly. It's, it's insane how crazy we get and the things that people are willing to say when they think that they can be anonymous. We love to tear people apart when they fail to live up to our perfect moral standard, which is ironic because none of us do, but we haven't gotten caught, and they have. And so when they get caught, then we feel justified in piling on. We feel justified in giving them whatever they've got coming, and we're going to lay it all out there. 
We feel justified in our outrage, and let's face it, we, we love it, don't we? We love it. Because if we can tear somebody down, if we can tear people apart, tear them to shreds, and then we feel better about ourselves. But see, Joseph, he has every right, and it would be completely understandable for him to do whatever he wanted to marry, to humiliate her, to shame her, even more than is probably already happening, to drag her out, throw the book at her, and to take his pound of flesh. But instead, he shows restraint. He tries to minimize the damage. Man, as a society, we desperately need to learn from this kind of restraint, don't we? I mean, just think about how crazy it's gotten. I mean, like if you've got your brother's best friend's roommate who lives in Chicago, who you've never even met before, but you've friended them on Facebook or maybe you're following them on Twitter, and then they say something that somehow offends you either directly or indirectly, and somehow it becomes your God-given right to not just let them know that you disagree, but actually to to give them both barrels, blow them out of the water, and then pass it on to all of your friends. Think about the fact that 10 years ago, you wouldn't even have known that person existed. Like, you didn't even know they were alive. 10 years ago, you never would have thought known that they thought that or said that. I mean, think how crazy it's gotten. We're so out of control. And listen, if we don't learn to practice kind of restraint, if we are so willing to um, annihilate anybody who happens to disagree with us or have a slightly different opinion, either directly or indirectly, on Facebook or just in the public square, whatever it is, and we have to go after them, we're going to find that this is a pretty lonely world. There's not going to be many people left standing. And think about it. How would you want someone to handle that with you? I mean, isn't that how you would, wouldn't you prefer if you said something or did something? Because, I mean, I'm sure none of us have, right? None of us ever said or done anything that we regretted or wish we could take back. Wouldn't you rather somebody come alongside and either try to understand you or even following that say, hey, you want, I want to correct you. This isn't how this should go down. This isn't cool. I don't know if you understand this. But to do so in a loving way off the grid instead of dragging us out into the public for the wolves. See, this is what I love about Joseph. He has every right to publicly humiliate Mary, but he, he won't do it. He's unwilling to shame her. Instead, he chooses to show her grace, and so he resolves to divorce her as quietly as he can. But of course, God has another plan for Joseph. So verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All right, so, so what's going on here? Is, is God really concerned with Mary's marital status? Is he really concerned that she not be a single mom? Is that his primary concern right here? No. All right, here's, notice what the angel tells Joseph. He gives him two instructions. First, take Mary as your wife. And secondly, call his name Jesus. So he wants him to, to take Mary as his wife, and then together they're going to name the child. Now, for Jesus, or the child, to be legally adopted by Joseph, he had to do two things. Guess what they were? That's, yeah, that's right. He had, to, he had to take Mary as his wife, one, and then he had to name the child. Because in naming the child, you're taking responsibility. 
You're saying that this child is now my responsibility. You're taking legal uh, adoption of that child. That, that child now is your child. And so for the child, Jesus, to be legally an heir of Joseph, he had to do these two things. And for Jesus to be legally the heir of David, Joseph had to do these two things. So remember, if you were here last week, uh, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, and you saw his whole family tree, and guess who, and it traces you through the, the lineage of David. And it ends not with Mary, but with Joseph. And so for Jesus to be the heir of David, for him to have legal right to the Davidic throne, to be part of that lineage of David, he has to be adopted by Joseph. Now, some of you are like, well, that all sounds trivial, and how important is that really? Okay, so here, here's the deal, all right? Matthew's readers, remember who he's writing to here. And this is important for us as well. Matthew's readers were waiting for the Messiah who was going to come through the line of David. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the chosen one, for the Savior who's going to come and sit on the throne of David. And Matthew's saying, this is that guy. This is him. This is who sits on that throne. But he wants to make one thing very clear. He's not the biological son of Joseph. He's adopted. He's the son of the Spirit. You get it? Tracking with me? Everybody good? So here's the question, right? How does a child who is not biologically the son of either Joseph or any other man become the legal heir of David? Take Mary as your wife and then call his name Jesus. I don't know about you, I I love how Utterly pragmatic God is in this moment. I just love it. Maybe it's just me, but it's like he's not parting the Red Sea. He's not like bending time and space like he does with the, the incarnation, the actual birth. It's just like, okay, so I need you to be related to you, so you marry her and then name him. Done. Okay, great. I, just, I don't know why. It's just, it's just me. And humor me, okay? It's cool. I don't know why. It just, I like it. All right. So that's just what Joseph does, though. That's just what he does. Look back down to verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and then check this out, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, so um, just for a moment here, I want to talk to the guys, because this is a little bit off subject, but it's worth saying. Um, young men, single guys, because I know that there's some of you in here. Listen to me very carefully, all right? There is a cheap and perverted version of manhood that's being peddled in our world today. Okay? And I think you I think you know where I'm going with this, all right? There's a cheap and perverted version of manhood that basically said if you want to be a real man then you got to get some. You got to get action, all right? I I'm, I don't know how else to put this in a euphemistic way, all right? But you, you tracking with me? This is what the world is telling us today. Like if you want to be a real man, if you got a girlfriend, you got to sleep with her. If you don't have a girlfriend, you better find somebody to sleep with because that's how you become a man. That's what it means to be a man in today's society. And can I tell you very clearly that it is stupid. <laughs> it just is. It's stupid. It's immature. And by the way, it also explains a lot about why our culture is as jacked up as it is today. Because we're telling young boys that manhood, instead of being restraint and self-control and honoring of women and um, as their sisters in Christ, as daughters of the Creator of God, instead of telling them to honor and to respect them, we're saying, hey, you need to get some. You need to, to use her for your own pleasure. It's not about self-control. It's about self-indulgence. 
And we've basically taken manhood and we've reduced it to the level of adolescent boys. Instead of holding men to a higher standard, we've basically reduced manhood to, to the equivalent of like the teenage boy who sits in his room and hides from his parents while he watches porn. I mean, it's the same level. That's the same maturity level. Please, you call that manhood? You call that being what it means to be a man? Spare me. Listen, listen to me. Real manhood. This isn't all of what it means to be a man, but I'm telling you, this is a good place to start. It starts with self-control. It starts with self-sacrifice. It starts with laying your life down for somebody else. It starts with honoring and respecting the women that, that God loves as his daughters. You want to mess with God's daughters? Are you crazy? I mean, you think that like your girlfriend's dad with a shotgun is scary? You got nothing on God, all right? You don't mess with God's daughters. Don't be stupid. Listen, you, you, you want to be a man, then you need to honor and respect your girlfriend and your future wife if that's the path that God has for you. He may not, all right? But, but it, it should he. You want to honor and respect her, then stay out of the bedroom, all right? Be a man. I, I love Joseph here. Because listen to this guy. He so honors and respects Mary and so honors and respects God and what God has called them to, that even though they're married, I'm just, all right, this isn't his girlfriend, this isn't his fiance, even after they're married, he says, you know what? This isn't about me. This isn't about me. Dude's a man. It's a real man. Love that about Joseph. All right, I'm going to stop that. But again, here, here's what I want us to see. Think about how crazy this story is. Thinking about crazy the story is, like as a 21st century person born and raised in Western culture, an angel shows up in your dream, tells you that the child is born of the Holy Spirit, and you're good with that? Really? I find that very hard to believe. Like, why would Joseph believe that? Why in the world would he go along with that? And I think there's a couple of reasons, all right? Uh, first of all, and this is difficult for some of us living in our culture and in our time to, to understand. But for Joseph, a dream would not have been an unusual way of experiencing God's revelation. Specifically, right, so put it this way. For Joseph, the idea of God speaking in a dream goes right along with what he knows about God. That God speaks to his people. That God reveals himself to his people. And sometimes that's in visions and dreams, all right, so for some of you, you're like crazy uncomfortable with that. Some of you are like, yeah, visions and dreams, that's awesome. All right, before you get too excited. What Joseph also knows is that those visions and dreams, those leadings from God, they always, always, always align with Scripture. And so what Joseph understands from knowing his Bible and reading his Bible is that the Holy Spirit is often associated with the coming of the Messiah, all right, so let me give you just one example of that. This is just one. I'll give you more. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is talking about the Messiah. It's reference to the coming Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So what Isaiah is describing here is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah does this work. Like the Holy Spirit raises up this Messiah, the Holy Spirit then empowers and enables the Messiah to do what he's called to do, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to those who are in captivity, 
to release prisoners from their prisons. And so Joseph is familiar enough with Scripture. He understands what the Bible says about the coming Messiah, that the Spirit is involved, that when he gets this leading, it checks out for him. He's like, okay, wait a minute, I got this dream. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I know that the Spirit is associated with that. This is a good rule of thumb for us, all right? Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then hopefully you are learning to hear the voice of God. My sheep know my voice. We're, we're learning how to experience his leading in our lives. But listen, it always, always has to be subject to God's word. So don't show up in my office and say, I know God's word says this, but I think I'm the exception. <laughs> no, you're not. And I will slap you in love and grace. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not the exception. Whatever God is leading you to, I promise you, I guarantee you, it's going to go right along with what his word says. Every time. Every time. And so Joseph, he recognizes God's leading. He senses that through the dream. This is not shocking to him. It might have been somewhat shocking to him. I'm sure it was, right? But in the end, he goes, yeah, this makes sense. This makes sense. What I know of God, what I know of his scriptures, what I know of the Messiah. And so he obeys God. All right. But here's here's where I want us to kind of camp out for the rest of our time. Um, Even then... The Messiah is not who Joseph expected. Jesus is not the Messiah that Joseph expected. In fact, he's not really the Messiah that anyone was expecting. Because Joseph, along with the rest of the Jewish people, were expecting a Messiah who would save them from who? Were you guys paying attention earlier? Who, are, who is the Messiah going to save them from? Anybody? Romans. Yes, gold star few people are listening. I love it. Yeah, he's going to save him from the Romans, but that's not what the angel says. So, so they're looking for someone to come in who's going to be a warrior, who's going to have an army, who's going to be tough, and he's going to have a sword. He's going to look awesome, and he's going to look something like this. Nerds, do not write me an email later and say he was a Roman, so he's not driving out the Romans. I know it. Just don't do it. All right. You know, I love you. All right. So um, this is what they're expecting, though. They're expecting somebody like this is going to come in. It's going to kick those Romans out. He's going to fight them. It's going to be awesome. It's going to destroy Rome and reestablish the nation of Israel. But the angel says something different, right? Look back at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Which puts a whole new spin on this, doesn't it? Because instead of, when he's talking in Isaiah 61, instead of talking about liberty to the captives, like I'm going to free you from the Romans, I'm going to free the nation of Israel from captivity, I'm going to release you from the prison that you're existing in as a society. No, now Jesus is to come and he's going to set us free from the prisons of our own sinfulness. which was probably just as shocking and insulting to Matthew's readers as it should be for us today. Here's what I mean. There is an implicit but very clear accusation in the statement that Jesus saves us from our sins. Built into the good news that that, that Jesus will save us from our sins is the very bad news that we are wretched sinners who are in need of saving. And that's offensive. 
Like if you got a friend who comes to you and says, hey, buddy, I'm going to forgive you. You know, you did this. I'm going to forgive you. But you don't think that you did that. Then that's insulting. It's like, dude, don't forgive me. I didn't hurt you. Like I wasn't wrong in that. Don't forgive me. I don't need your forgiveness. See, we chafe at this idea that there's something innately wrong with us. We chafe at this idea that deep down we're not good people, that we don't actually deserve God's love. But the reality is that all of us have sinned, that all of us have failed to live up to God's standard of perfection. And the reason I know that is because I know that none of us have lived up to even our own standards of perfection, much less God's. Anybody here ever disappointed themselves? Don't be shy. Raise your hands. Some honest people. Anybody ever let yourself down? Anybody ever lie to yourself? Yeah. Yeah. See, we don't live up to our own standards. Why on earth would we think that we can live up to God's standard? See, the grace of God, it first accuses me. It, it, it doesn't let me off the hook. It doesn't turn a blind eye to me. The grace of God first accuses me, and only then does it offer relief. And it's, that's the offense of grace. Grace, by its very nature, offends us because it declares us that we are unworthy of the forgiveness and blessing that God is offering, and we don't like that. We don't like that. See, if we're honest, we're much more comfortable with the idea that God would save us from the consequences of our sin instead of from our sinfulness, because then he doesn't actually have to mess with us. He can just mess with what's out there, and he can kind of solve it. He can fix all of it. And so while we sing all these songs about God change us and make us new and make us like Jesus and change us from the inside out, a lot of times we don't mean it. We don't. We would much rather God come in and save us from all of the externals, save us from all the stuff that's out there. And yeah, I might have contributed to it, but just fix all of that so that I can continue to do whatever I want. See, we're much less okay with the idea that God would actually change our hearts, that he would actually interfere with our lives. We're okay with God hacking away some branches, but we don't really want him digging into the root. We're okay with God treating the symptoms, but we don't really want him to deal with the disease. But the problem is that and the problem is that the problem's not out there, it's in here. The problem isn't out there, it's not in the externals, the problem is in here. Everything that's wrong with my world and your world, it starts here. And so that's where God starts. Which wasn't what we were hoping for, is it? It's not, it's not what we were hoping for. It's not the God that we were dreaming of, it's certainly not the God they were dreaming of. Just come and save us from Rome. We want God just to come and save us from our circumstances, but God loves us too much to simply solve our problems while ignoring the sickness that eats away at our souls. That'd be giving, like giving aspirin to a cancer patient instead of treating the disease. God loves us too much for that. When you get right down to it, what we really don't want is a God who interferes. We don't want a God who involves himself in my life. I want a God who caters to my whims. I want a God who's going to make my life happy and healthy and wealthy. So we've got a few different gods that maybe we kind of like look to at different times. I mean, sometimes we look to a God who looks like this. He's going to swoop in. He's going to save us. He's Superman. He's going to fix everything in the world. Save us from everything that's out there. And sometimes that's not enough. And so then we need Santa Claus who's going to come and he's going to give us all the things that we really want. Wouldn't that be great? He's just going to give us what we want. And if that's not enough, when we've got a fairy godmother who's going to make all of our dreams come true. We want those times of gods. And the God we don't want is a God who looks like this. Because that God interferes. 
that God saves us not from our circumstances, but from ourselves. That God has every right to say, I love you too much to leave you like this. This is bad for you. You got to change this. You got to rethink this because he bought us with his own blood. Let's see what, what Matthew's saying here is that Jesus is that God. He's the real God, not the God that we've invented. Like we don't get to write Jesus' job description. He defies our expectations. He doesn't, he's not interested in checking off any of our boxes. But that God, the real God, maybe not the God we we're hoping for, not the God we wanted, but that real God has invaded time and space. The Messiah, Emmanuel, he has come. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I'm not going to, um, you don't need to turn there, but this is actually a reference back to Isaiah 7. And I'm not going to totally unpack this, but let me give you a quick synopsis. So in Isaiah 7, the prophet Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz, who's the king of Judah. All right, And Judah is being threatened by these other nations. And so as best we can understand from the context, there's a crowd of people and Isaiah is trying to reassure Ahaz that God is going to save them. And so part of that, he says, there's this young woman who's standing there and he says, listen, by the time this young woman, probably not even married at this point, but by the time she's going to have a child, and by the time that child is old enough to know right and wrong, those nations that you're so worried about, they're going to be a thing of the past. God's going to take care of them. And you're going to name the child Emmanuel as a sign of God's presence. So you know that God is with you. God is there right now, even when all seems lost. And so what, what Matthew does is he takes this name Emmanuel and he applies it to Jesus. Not to say that Jesus is a sign of God's presence, but to say that Jesus is God's presence. That Jesus is the incarnate God. That God himself became one of us. That he experienced our life. All the highs and the lows and the joys and the disappointments and all the cruelty and the love that this world could muster. He came here. He become, became one of us. He knows what it means to be human, which means that Jesus has already walked the road that you're on. Whatever you brought in today, wherever road you're on, however hard it is, Jesus has experienced that. He's tasted it. Like there's nothing in your life that he's like, man, I have no idea what that's about. God didn't stand off at a distance. Jesus came in. He invaded our world to become one of us. Whatever we're experiencing, he's been there. Loneliness, been there. Frustration, disappointment, he's been there too. Betrayal, you better believe it. Humiliation, scorn, ridicule, oh yeah, he's walked that path. There's nothing that you and I have experienced in this life that he hasn't already tasted to a greater degree than any of us can imagine. And the point is that we're not alone. God didn't stand off. He's not this transcendent God. He said, man, I hope humanity kind of works that thing out, man. He invaded our world. He became one of us. We are not alone. And so in a universal, all of humankind sense, Jesus is with us. He's one of us. He knows what this is about. He knows what it means. He became one of us. He experiences what it means to be human. We're not alone. But for believers, for believers, there's an added dimension here. That Jesus, though he is not physically present in our world right now, he has gone to be with the Father. We are awaiting his physical return where he brings the kingdom here. That in the meantime, he's given us his spirit. And so quite literally, as believers, this Holy Spirit indwells us so that we are never 
ever alone. At the end of Matthew, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're never alone. And hopefully for most of you, that's awesome news. Hopefully for most of you this morning, that is a great comfort for you. To know that whatever you're walking through, whatever is going on in your life, you are not alone. You're not alone. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then Jesus is present in your life. The Spirit indwells your heart. He will never leave you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with you. On the flip side of that, for some of you, it may not be exciting news. Because frankly, the idea of a God who invades your heart just sounds weird and invasive and awkward. And frankly, you've got it on your own. You're good. You don't need God. You you need God to be Superman on occasion, maybe Santa Claus, maybe a fairy godmother, but you don't need that kind of a God. You need God on like on an hourly rate. You kind of check in and check out, but you don't need a God who lives inside of you. And so let me just ask you, do you you really think that's going to work out? Do you think that's going to play out well for you? I mean, whatever you've got going on in your life that's so great, I mean, whether it's your your 401k, your job, your career, your family, your spouse, whatever it is, I mean, do you think that stuff's going to save you? Like in the grand scheme of things, I mean, that stuff has a shelf life of like 65 years tops. What about the next trillion See, now that stuff is going to deal with the real problem. Remember, the problem isn't out there. Those are just externals. You can control all of that to some extent, but the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't here, and you can't solve that. You can't touch this. You can handle all of that out there to some extent, but you can't solve what's going on in your own soul. We need Jesus to invade our hearts to save us, not just from what's out there. Man, he can handle that. He's going to handle that in a flash when he comes back. It's going to be done. We need God, Jesus, to invade our hearts and save us from ourselves because we can't solve that on our own. See, this is the only real hope there is. Jesus is the only real hope for the world, that he would save us from our sins, that when we are consumed by our our bitterness and our guilt and our pride and our outrage and our lust, that God in his grace, he gives us not only, he shows us restraint. He doesn't just give us, he doesn't, He not only doesn't give us what we deserve, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us life. He gives us forgiveness. And so if you're thinking, man, I've got this. I can handle this on my own. I don't really need that kind of a God. Um, Wake up. In the most friendly and loving way I can say it, just please wake up. Because all that stuff that you think you have a handle on, you don't. And you can't solve this. But Jesus came to save us from ourselves. And if you're here this morning and you are wrestling with guilt and you're wrestling with shame and you know you've not lived up to God's standard, you haven't even lived up to your own standard, hear me, I want to speak hope to you that Jesus came into this world to save sinners like you and me. He came here to free us from the shame, from the guilt He did not give us what we deserve. He came so we could be forgiven for every wrong thought, every wrong action, attitude, motive, anything you have done or will do. You can't out-sin God's grace. Period. So let's not miss Jesus this year. 
All right? Not the Jesus that we've invented. Not the Superman Jesus or the Santa Claus Jesus or the fairy godmother Jesus. Let's not miss Jesus this year. And he, you know what? He may not always be the God that we want him to be. He may not be the God that you were hoping for or you were wishing for when you came in here. You just wanted to hear about a little baby Jesus. He's so cute. Instead, we got a God who died for us. He may not be the, the God that you're hoping to unwrap under your Christmas present this year but he's the God that we desperately need. He's the God who frees us from shame, who saves us from our sin. He is Emmanuel. He's come. Praise God. Praise God.